Uh, hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today on episode 396, we come back with a traditional journal club. I'm joined by my retina colleagues to discuss four recent publications in the world of retina. We discussed the performance of ChatGPT in ophthalmology. We also discussed cost-utility comparison of bevacizumab and aflibercept for the treatment of vein occlusion in SCORE2. We wanted to highlight the association of biomarker-based artificial intelligence with risk of racial bias in retinal images. And finally, we end with this, you know, we have to talk about ChatGPT4 as it comes to surgical treatment of retinal diseases. And these are all publications from recent major ophthalmology journals. Remember, you can find a list of relevant financial disclosures in the episode description. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now back with a journal club. I am joined by two of my colleagues from around the country. First, in alphabetical order, Dr. Rebecca Suarez, who's from Boston, Massachusetts. Rebecca, welcome for welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. And I've got Dr. Sarwar Zahid, who's in New York. Sarwar, welcome. Great to be back. Thanks, Jay. Sarwar, I hope things are okay recording this on June 9th, uh, 2023. I know the air quality has been an issue up there. So hopefully uh, you and your loved ones and staff and office staff are staying okay with the air. Um, so hopefully things are okay up there. It's better today, thankfully. All right. Well, we got a couple of great articles. Um, ChatGPT is very hot in the world right now. So we have two articles on ChatGPT. We're going to start with this first one from Ophthalmology Science, which is called Evaluating the Performance of ChatGPT in Ophthalmology and Analysis of its Successes and Shortcomings. This is by Antaki et al. Uh, Sarwar, you going to tell us a little bit about what they showed in this article? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a great article. Um, I believe this is out of uh, Montreal. They did a, a great study where they tested ChatGPT and looked into whether or not it's able to answer BCSC questions and AFCO questions and how it compares to uh, you know, you know, human performance. Um, so I really wanna commend the authors here because they did a great job. Their study design and their discussion particularly were excellent. Um, the way they designed the study is basically, um, so for people you know, who aren't as familiar with ChatGPT, it's, it's a large language model. So basically, it has access to this giant database of you know everything that's online of text and you know it basically the software learns on its own and this is why you know you can ask a question and based on the information that's available it it creates text in a conversational way to answer those questions um, the way they designed the study is they you know they picked the different questions um, they looked at different levels of difficulty um, from BCSC questions and opto questions. And they basically entered these prompts into uh, the, the OG version of ChatGPT and the newer version of ChatGPT Plus, which has been upgraded. And what they, a couple of things that they did that really demonstrate that they understand how ChatGPT works. They, you know, when you, when you open this prompt, you can ask a question. And when you ask a question, it can actually, it, the software can actually learn from that encounter. So one of the interesting things that they did is they did not put in a prompt and then put in a, the second the second prompt right away so it doesn't have an opportunity to learn from the information that was gathered during the first prompt. You know, in, in summary, what they found was that this, uh, the old, the, the 
ChatGPT did a great job overall. I mean, it, with the BCSC questions, they were able to get 59.4% of the uh, questions right. And for Ofto questions, it was about 49.2 questions. And what was a little scary was that it was not too far from <laughs> what humans are able to do. So that's a little disconcerting. Um, so what they, and remember that they actually took out all the questions that are associated with radio, radiographic images and uh, pathology images or anything requiring imaging. So this is simply text knowledge-based questions. The way they, um, what they realize is uh, when they did their analysis of their data, um, it, uh, and again, like humans were at like, you know, like uh, people like us on average for the uh, BCSE questions, we're at about 64%. So we're only 5% better than some this large language model, right? So what I thought was great was that they highlighted the potential promise of this software, that they're able to answer number one, simple questions, reliably well, very easily, but it does struggle with questions that require um, a higher level of critical thinking and reasoning, such as neuro-ophthalmology questions. And then they point out that, you know, actually 40% of patients referred to neuro-ophthalmology are often misdiagnosed because this is a complex diagnosis to make. Um, the other thing to remember is that they, this also highlights some of the limitations of ChatGPT, right? This is only using text. Um, as, a, as a field that predominantly uses uh, a lot of imaging in our diagnosis. Um, ChatGPT may not be, you know, you can't just answer chat, ask ChatGPT, hey, um, what's the best option to fix my retinal detachment? I mean, you can't look at a fundus photo, you can't look at a B scan and say, actually, you have a superior detachment. So in this situation, we, should, we can probably do a pneumatic in this situation. Um, they highlight some of the other ways you can improve the performance. You know, if you train something specifically instead of the entire internet on something like iWiki, and there are some additional um, deep learning uh, uh, methodologies that utilize imaging as well. Um, so perhaps in the future, you know, in addition to uh, interpreting imaging, chat, these, uh, some, uh, uh, I guess, modalities such as ChatGPT, may be able to perform even better with imaging and radiographic images as well. I thought they did a great job and their study design was excellent. Um, uh, it's a little scary, but you know, I don't think ChatGPT is quite there just yet. Yeah, great summary. Rebecca, what are your reactions to a paper like this? <laughs> um, yeah, I thought that was an excellent summary and I really love the paper. It is really scary. I think we're all gonna be out of a job very soon. Um, <laughs> No, I, I totally agree with everything that you said. Um, I was very surprised at how equivalent the, uh, the testing scores were to human test scores. I think um, one thing that particularly, I guess, reassured me a little bit about the safety of my job <laughs> was the inability of the software to interpret images. Um, and they say in their conclusion that although this approach shows potential, it is limited by reliance on a large amount of image text pairs from the internet. Um, and that's in re not in referral to chat GPT. There's another um, contrastive language imaging uh, pre-training model that they talk about as a potential um, candidate for image text pairing. And I think what's 
what the greatest limitation of image text pairing is right now is that if you Google a, you know, a certain retinal condition and look in Google images for that retinal condition, you'll get a ton of random, non-specific um, images that pop up. So I wonder if that has any impact on making that technology much harder to develop um, and why probably the language learning software, um, the language learning AI is probably an easier modality to develop um, than just the image modality. I think combined, the two would be an incredible, um, uh, an incredible tool to screen patients in remote places. I mean, you can think of a ton of, of different um, uh, uh, ways to utilize this technology if and when it becomes even more advanced. You know, you can think about like on call, you know, if you have patients call into a hotline, you know, when you're on retina call, um, you always have to take those calls and ask, answer the same questions. Whereas if you could use a chat bot to do that for you, you'd really only maybe get referred, you know, the really um, time sensitive or emergent or complex patients. So there's a lot of downstream um, uh, capabilities for this, data, for this uh, technology, but it, you know, obviously again, it's not there quite yet, but definitely interesting and scary. <laughs> yeah, I think that, I mean, it's, it, it, we can talk about a bunch of implications. I think there's some interesting sub analysis here that, you, that were referenced. Um, I think it's interesting to see what subject matters it's struggled in, right? You know, and that's sort of the, the spinoff question would be, you know, if you're, if you're an ophthalmologist out there listening, which subspecialties are likely to get replaced first versus last? You know, neuro-ophthalmologists, <laughs> you're safe because your colleagues can't do neuro-ophthalmology. And ChatGPT doesn't know anything about neuro-ophthalmology <laughs> either because it really struggled <laughs> in neuro. Um, pathology um, and, you know, tumors, oncology, it struggled initially but got better very quickly, which I think goes back to pattern recognition a little bit when it comes to path, yeah. um, which probably is similar to, I mean, again, if I'm, a, if I'm a resident listening to this, I'm like, okay, I can be better, I think, than ChatGPT. Like, the areas I can really pick up my score or do better on my boards on, I think path has always been discussed as low hanging fruit in the sense, if you really focus on pattern recognition, you can really improve fast at it versus um, other subject matter. Maybe you need to really understand it well to, to improve your scores. Um, I think the other interesting part of it is um, it, it did really, really well in cornea. So if you're a refractive surgeon out there, uh, maybe a little bit worried that it could be doing LASIK for you in 20 years. Um, but really, I mean, this is, and sorry, where you can come, we'll swing back to you. This is, there's limitations to this. I think the interesting thing they mentioned in their discussion was biases, right? So ChatGPT is learning from available information, but available information also has its own bias in it. And we'll talk about a bias, artificial intelligence, how bias can factor into that later. The whole goal would be to minimize bias as you start incorporating technology. The problem is when it learns from the information we have, which is already biased and standardized tests, which we know have their own biases, then it can end up as like a super biased supercomputer. Um, so I, I don't know if you have any thoughts regarding that in terms of how you could safeguard that, because it's kind of hard to teach something that you don't really know how the internal operations work. Yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I think it's, you know, it's for a lot of these uh, AI deep learning methodologies, you know, people say garbage in, garbage out, right? I mean, so, you know, this is looking at the entire, you know, available literature, and that is not as helpful. But, you know, they actually propose something like iWiki. I mean, if, if, a, if something can be trained on iWiki, I mean, which is, you know, very, you know, it's, it's more as a resource for physicians. Um, 
maybe we can get better uh, because that's something that the input is uh, more curated to what acceptable treatment methodologies and paradigms are. Um, but the question is, do we want something that is independent of us, of our input? Because if we want something independent of our input, you know, we should probably allow the algorithm, however it's working. And a lot of times we don't know how these deep learning algorithms are working. Um, or, you know, it's how, how do we select the input? You know, that's, that's, that's a really hard question to answer because even when we even when we say iWiki, right? I mean, how do we how do we say that the input there is necessarily free of bias? You know, it, it, there's really no real way to. I mean, nothing that I can think of that can be completely free of bias. I mean, even say like I, I usually like doing pneumatics for you know my three o'clock horseshoe tears. That's a bias. That's something that I do. It's not necessarily the right way to do things. I mean, that information is picked up by one of these large language mo models, it can, you know, we don't know how the output is going to be. So that makes it really tough. Something that's really scary to me is um, just listening to you talk about that. But um, it also feels very reminiscent to me of um, physicians who are also biased in their practice patterns, you know, and some people get mm. siloed, you know, they may be in a very rural community, or they may just not be as involved in kind of, you know, as much evidence based medicine anymore, kind of different points in careers. And um, you sort of, you can just as human and with human error, you can sort of either get siloed or have kind of a, a broad average of information that you use to rely upon to make medical decisions. So it's interesting because I think there's some, there's some, there's a definite downside to having the artificial intelligence sort of get siloed and spin off and turn, you know, allowing the, the AI to sort of digress into these weird you know, niches. <laughs> um, but at some point, there's also some benefit to it in that you get sort of an average of practice patterns. So if, like you said, you kind of what, how do we choose what input to put in? Do we just choose, you know, AAO based practice patterns? Or do you choose, you know, world based practice patterns? Or do you choose, you know, so it's, it's kind of interesting to see where this will go and how specific and um, tailored we want it to be versus how generalized and averaged mm. we want it to be. Um, I think that's a really interesting aspect that you bring up, Sarwar. Yeah, yeah, you know what's interesting? Uh, go ahead, Sarwar. Oh, sorry. I was just saying another thing that I just remembered about their methodology is the BCSC questions are not publicly available. So that is yeah. like another super, super smart study design thing that they did. And it's, you know, anyone designing studies like this should think about this is when you're asking a question, you want to make sure to truly test the intelligence of, you know, an AI based algorithm, you should present new information, right? But at the same time, you know, are are are, are there blogs out there? Where, you know, I'm I'm sure there are blogs out there where people are like, oh yeah, I got this question, you know, like you know, like on one of those uh, student yeah. doctor nets, like, oh yeah, I yeah. took this test, you know, they asked me about this, you know, like you know, is, if it's scouring things like that, then yes, it's a question they haven't seen before, but maybe, maybe that that data is still out mm. there, so it's interesting how that works. That's funny. That yeah. The other thing I was thinking when Rebecca was talking about biases and practice biases, this is the hard part about medical education, right? Because medical education is sort of a mix between, hey, you have to keep adding evidence-based medicine to your repertoire because medicine is constantly evolving. And yet you need to learn from older generations that learned in a different era, the clinical acumen part of it, right? I think all of us would agree there's a balance between them. We can argue the percentage that should be one or the other, 
But the problem is the evidence doesn't answer all the questions we have, especially surgical questions. It, it's limited in terms of study design and how studies are conducted. Um, medical retina studies are a little better, although they still don't always reflect what we do in the real world or what patients are willing to do. At the same time, if you just say, hey, I'm not going to pick up a book and I'm just going to learn from my attendings and just like learn from their gestalt, then you're not evolving, right? You're staying in place while the world keeps moving on and things keep changing. So it's interesting to think of ChatGPT that way because ChatGPT has to do both, right? It needs to learn from evidence. But if you had an algorithm that solely used evidence and didn't account for individual social situations or individual patient scenarios, then you would end up with a non what was it the right word? You would be a useful, maybe on a, a population scale, but probably not best for the individual patient for an encounter if it was doing patient management. At the same time, it has to be able to incorporate some evidence. So one of the interesting questions would be, because you're not telling it what to learn from each of those sources, and that goes back to what you were saying, Sarwar, is how does how does it decide what is important, right? And that's true for any of us. Like, why do quote unquote better physicians, why are there better and worse physicians? Take out bedside manner, just talk about clinical decision-making, surgical decision-making. Like that's very subjective and that's very argued about what is a right decision or a right bias in a certain scenario. But we've all been with family members in situations where we get a sense, we're like, oh, I trust this doctor. Or I don't trust this doctor. Sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it's not. But the truth is we're all not gonna be the same. Some of us are gonna be better like, Star Wars may be better at dislocated eye wells. Rebecca might be better at TRDs. And I'm probably better at none of those compared to you two. But the point is we have pros and cons. Each is, To act like we're all exactly the same is, a, is false. We're not all going to be the same at everything, right? Every person isn't created equal. At the same time, what is that difference? And what is ChatGPT analyzing to decide? Because again, we're extrapolating from, hey, you're going to take a test to a big extrapolation. You're going to be managing a patient, which is a totally different question. But the reason we've centered most of the conversation on that is because that is the thing everyone's thinking and talking about is, could it be either an adjunct in the clinic or adjunct at home for a patient as a resource? Or is it, um, it could it ultimately be a replacement, at least at a ground level, for a physician in terms of helping with population screening and population health when you have a shortage of physicians. I don't know if you have any any thoughts on this, Rebecca. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I think that's really well said. It's sort of like, which physician do you want chat GT, GTP to be? <laughs> um, and yeah, I think it's, I think we're so, um, we're so close to, to being there, you know, where technology is that advanced that we need to start making these really you know, intense and insightful decisions, but we're also so far from understanding um, what the implications of those decisions are. So yeah, that's a great point. I never really thought about it, is like which type of physician, if it's gonna be a physician in the future, you know, far down the road or maybe near down the road, like which type of physician is it gonna be and what practice patterns is it gonna have? Um, yeah, I think that's one of the things I kept thinking about while we were talking about this is in the news, there's a um, discussion of, this chat GPT like AI model that answers questions regarding eating disorders. I think it's called Tessa. Mm -hmm. It was just in NPR, I was just reading about and they, the um, eating disorder, National Eating Disorder Association, you know, canceled its, its in-person telemarket or in-person um, volunteer hotline and instead implemented Tessa, which is this, um, this AI model. Um, and felt like it was really ready to go. And then as soon as people started testing it, it sort of veered off. Um, and mm -hmm. there was debate about whether or not the, you know, the 
wrong answers that it was giving were basically um, trained into the system or whether it sort of digressed. But I still think that's a, a great example of how um, the answers that it were giving were so non-patient specific and so kind of out there that um, we really need to be careful about even beginning to implement this until we understand the ramifications in our patients. Yeah. It's also not consistent. I mean, if you ask the same question right. like multiple times, it can give you a slightly different answer. Sounds like some of right. your attendings from fellowships are, right? I mean, people are yeah, like that's that right. too. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But when it comes to actually patient decision-making, like I'm imagining a situation where like, you know, say we implement something like this as an assistant to surgical decision-making. It's like, okay, so I'm, you know, peeling a membrane, you know, and like, you know, this thing pops up, you know, the AI says, don't peel the membrane. You know, I'm like, no, screw you. I want to peel the membrane. I feel like peeling the membrane. You know, where do you, where, where do you get the audacity to like tell me not to peel the membrane? But like, you know, it's, it's, what exactly is our goal here? Do we want something that, you know, I, this is yeah. amazing technology. I, I would imagine it would be more polite amazing. than that. I think, I feel like it would be like, Dr. Zahid, there is an 88% chance of failure if you decide to peel this membrane. Would you like to continue? Like something like that? At least based on yeah. every sci-fi movie I've seen, the suggestions are always really polite and generally a British woman. <laughs> it's not an Indian accent, I'll tell you that. You know, like, hey, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't peel that one. It's not a good one. <laughs> Okay, let's transition. We have another ChatGPT uh, paper. So this is called Appropriateness and Readability of ChatGPT4 Generated Responses for Surgical Treatment of Retinal Diseases from the group at Wales. Bita Amamane was the first author, Ajit Curry, and the senior author. Rebecca, transition to talking a little bit about what they showed here. Yeah, so another great article looking at uh, the capabilities of ChatGPT. This one's um, specifically focused on um, discussions in terms of retinal detachment, epiretinal membrane management and macular hole management. Basically, they came up with a list of common questions about the definition, the prevalence, visual impact, diagnosis, management options, post-operative information about those three retinal conditions. And they asked ChatGPT, uh, it was version four, um, 88 questions and repeated each question three times to see, to look at consistency. And they basically had a grading system um, they had two different doctors grade whether or not the response from ChatGPT was appropriate or inappropriate or um, inconsistent. And um, then they had a, um, someone to adjudicate uh, if there were inconsistencies between the two graders. And they found that for the cumulative questions, there were appropriate responses for ChatGPT for, um, for each of the three questions in 84.6%. So it was a pretty good, I mean, it got scored a B on <laughs> giving the right answer um, or the, the correct surgical management according to the graders. There were inappropriate responses kind of totally out of nowhere um, in five to 8% of the questions. And then um, the main kind of examples they gave were inappropriate responses to how ERM and macular hole were prevented and diagnosed, the complications of laser treatment of retinal detachment, and then why, visual, uh, why vision improves after silicone oil removal. Um, so those are some of the examples. Um, and then they also, I, th I think one of the, the um, uh, really elegant parts of this paper looked at readability scores because one of the things that is going to be important to ChatGPT is not only whether or not the responses are appropriate, but whether or not they're appropriate and readable for um, the fifth to sixth grade reading level that the American 
American, Academy, American Medical Association recommends patient literature to be. And so they used um, different reading scores using well-known readability indices. They found some really cool app called Readable um, on, online and had it kind of go through the different validated indices for each of these um, responses. And they um, found that <laughs> despite there being some very appropriate answers that um, really they were very low, they had a very low level of readability, meaning you required a significant amount of education to really be able to discern what the chat GPT was trying to tell you. Um, some of the limitations included that um, uh, they didn't, I think one thing that Sarawar was mentioning in the first paper was that they basically restarted the session every time um, they went in the first, you know, every time they asked a question, they sort of restarted the session so that the AI didn't really learn from previous answers. And in this, I, I wasn't sure whether or not they started a new session to reduce memory retention bias. So that was something that um, I think is important um, that wasn't really commented on. Um, but overall, I think it was an excellent paper. Um, I think it's a, another really important aspect of thinking about AI-related technologies in the medical field is, is yes, what if they can answer questions correctly, but you need that human aspect to sort of um, translate that to people who, who don't understand the important literature. At least for now. Yeah, at least, at least for, for now. now. Yeah. Sarwar, yeah. so, so thoughts on this paper and how it ties into what we were talking about earlier. Another great paper exploring uh, the implications of ChatGPT. I think one of the biggest highlights is the, is, is the readability, as, um, as was already mentioned, uh, because patients may be looking up, oh, well, you know, what can I expect my vision to be after retinal detachment repair? I mean, as we, as we know, um, that there's that's a patient individual, you know, every patient heals differently. Um, so I think that's an area I'm less concerned about ChatGPT replacing us, right? Because I think we all have our little... Um, tips and tricks on how we explain the severity of a patient's condition and the fact that, you know, it, there's an unpredictability and individuality in the way surgery is performed and how the patient heals. It was interesting how some of these things, um, the things that it got incorrect was interesting. You know, it's, you know, for macular hole and epiretinal membrane, it said that fluorescein angiography was a, uh, fundamental diagnostic tool. Mm. Interestingly, you know, I, I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, what information is it using out there, you know, because there's, you know, if you look at images of, you know, go back to textbooks like Ryan Retina and some of these you know, textbooks that, you know, are sort of fundamental in our education, there are fluorescein angiography images. So that, oh, in a macular hole, there is a window defect in the area of a macular hole, you know, or on fluorescein angiography, you can better see the striae, you know, when you do a fluorescein angiography. So I wonder how it's weighting some of these things mm. to get to this answer. So that's something we, we won't understand. The other thing I was curious about is we do this thing, you know, uh, you know, as we talked about not repeating, um, the same prompt. I mean, uh, basically using it, uh, it you know, not to, to prevent retention, doing a new prompt in a, it, it basically reloading the entire algorithm. But what I don't know about the algorithm, and this is something you know where I, I, I have to learn, is the algorithm learning as the prompts are placed. Um, because for example, um, you know, if 
it, it's it's already done a certain search before. Is it doing an independent search every single time as if no question has ever been asked? Or is it, you know, basically the research that was done before from a prior prompt, is it learning from that and getting better? Sort of how deep learning algorithms get better with time as, you know, you query it and it, you know, as you test it. I wonder if this is happening in a similar way here. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of, like like Rebecca, final takeaway and their takeaway, it's not ready yet, but the yet is there because you can imagine you said, so if it got better at sort of parsing out some of these things, then there'll be improvement. I think the danger, this goes back to our original discussion, the danger, this is not just unique to chat GPT. This is true for any one of us. The danger is when people start viewing anything as a authority source, but it's not, it doesn't have an internal sort of check of, am I actually accurate and reliable, right? And that's true for people, right? So if you're the primary, that could be true in a rural location where you're the only physician and you're practicing. If you're not practicing evidence-based medicine or up to par, but you're in a community where people just have that cultural trust in the physician, you'd never know because you're never going to get that feedback and they're never going to ask that question. But that could be true in the ivory tower too, in academics, right? If you're in academics and you're surrounded by trainees and you're just kind of always just doing the same thing, and you're not adapting and you're not realizing what you don't know, the same thing can happen to all of us. And ChatGPT is no different. And the danger, I think, is, again, I'm, we all want that trust in the physician. We all want to have trust in our resources, whether it's a Google search or Wikipedia or ChatGPT. And the thing is, we believe what we read and we believe what we see. That's just part of who we are as visual creatures. The hard part is it, it is really hard to reconcile in your head that, hey, I read this thing, but where is it sourced from? Like, what is is it accurate? And I'm going to check multiple sources. I'm guilty of that, right? I'm at dinner and we're having a conversation about some actor. I go on Wikipedia. I'm like, oh yeah, this thing about this person. I assume it's right. I'm not going down to the bottom and checking the references. Obviously not a critical decision-making point, but the, that can extrapolate for patients. If they're reading about something and they're like, man, ChatGPT knows everything about everything. And they're reading about something. Then they go to their doctor and they're like, hey, why didn't you get an FA? You know, I've heard FA is the standard of care for epiretinal membranes. Then you have to stop and sort of go through that process with the patient. So Rebecca, I, I think that's always the interesting thing. And that's a, more of an education thing for all of us is that's population education. It's sort of learning just to take everything with a grain of salt without becoming like the other way, which is nothing is real. It's an argument that happened during COVID, right, a vaccination. Nothing is real because everything could be fake. And so we shouldn't believe anything. So I can believe anything because nothing is real. There's a different, and I've talked about that term academic nihilism. Like there is truth in this world. It's just about understanding that everything you read doesn't have to be the truth and there's different probabilities of being true the problem and limitation with chat gpt is still even though it seems like an authority figure because of the font it uses the speed at which it responds how accurate it seems about many things it's still going to have its weak points until it evolves and then we as physicians have to counsel patients counseling each other it's like hey this is a great resource just because you read it there doesn't mean it's true yeah i definitely feel like like a conversation about inputs is is going to be huge. I was thinking while you were talking is um, it'd be interesting, you know, iWiki may not be totally free from bias, just like we're not free from bias, but it would be interesting if you could create like a, an AI that had um, its inputs based on something like PubMed, where you have peer reviewed journals, which are not free from bias either, <laughs> but basically like a weighting score for how recent the information is, um, how many times it's repeated within PubMed, and also, um, you know, whether or not it's a randomized control trial versus like a case report. And I feel like that having sort of 
not pulling from all of the internet that ever was, but pulling from, you know, a database like PubMed where you do get the, the assistance um, away from bias because you have such a, a large number of contributors, but you also get some amount of screening because there is some, you know, peer review in most of the articles, not all. You still have some bias there too, but I don't know. It's going to be a tough decision figuring out how to um, hone this this AI and use it in a in a non-biased way. <laughs> well, speaking of bias, the next article ties into bias. It's association of biomarker-based artificial intelligence with risk of racial bias in retinal images. This is JAMA ophthalmology. Um, Sarwar, were you going to talk about this one? Yeah, <clears throat> so this is uh, another uh, great paper uh, discussing some of the implications of AI, specifically when it comes to racial bias. So um, there have been several studies done in the past and uh, that look at um, the ability of AI to determine race um, based on coral pigmentation, contrast between vessels. So what they did here is explore, it's like, okay, if we take out some of the uh, markers uh, of potential markers that can give away race. Um, can we reduce the ability of some of these deep learning algorithms to detect or assign race? So this study used uh, uh, images from a ROP screening database. Some of the study, some of it was done um, at UIC, you know, what's up, uh, represents. Um, so basically they looked at patients who did not have ROP. So these images were graded by um, pediatric retina ROP specialists um, and patients who did not have ROP were included in the study. So what they did here is um, they convert, they used a previously existing uh, methodology, which is a deep learning uh, methodology called UNET. And they converted all the images from uh, color to uh, grayscale. So the important note here is that this is also, they used an AI-based algorithm to convert into grayscale. So that's, you know, you know, it's not something, it's not something that's like a manual thresholding where you say, okay, you're putting it through image J and con converting it into a, um, a grayscale image. So it's a bit more sophisticated than that. So they took those grayscale images and they use a differential threshold thresholding to get skeletonized images. And they tested each of those things. They, they trained a deep learning algorithm to learn on, on a test population. Okay, this is self-reported race and this is the image. So they to, to basically to teach the algorithm this is, uh, these are the association with race based on these images that you see. Okay, so it goes through the algorithm. Most people, most of us don't actually understand exactly what it's detecting um, to assign, um, to, to reach a specific conclusion, right? So then they had a, they had the, the training algorithm, the training set, and then they had another set of test images. Again, grayscale, color, grayscale, and differential thresholding of uh, skeletonized images. Um, and they tested these different uh, groups to see if the algorithm can still detect race. And what was scary, and the initial uh, headline here is actually kind of nerve wracking that even when you take these images and take them, make them grayscale and actually just make them into skeleton line drawings of retinal uh, vessel maps, this algorithm can, you know, you know, over 95% of the time can tell you if the person is white or black. 
the number goes down as you reduce the amount of detail in these uh, retinal vessel maps, which means they it's a different threshold that they're basically uh, making these line drawings. Um, but it, because there's less data, it becomes less accurate, but it's still pretty good. It's still above like 75, 80% that they're able to detect race. But even though that headline is scary, the important thing to note here, and I think they do a great job at discussing this in the um, in the discussion section, is that, remember, we didn't just put this, say, okay, every value above this or below this is uh, black, every uh, a black as a pixel, um, and everything else is white in order to make these images. They use an AI-based algorithm to make the grayscale images. So some of this bias that's being detected, we don't know where it may be coming from. Um, so that's that's point number one. You know, it's not it's not as if you're taking a, a color images, making them black and white right away, and then making line drawing based off them. Um, so yes, this is scary and a bit nerve wracking, but we are introducing the AI algorithm in the first conversion to grayscale. So some of the bias may be coming from something else that we don't understand. Um, so that's number one. And number two is that, yes, some of this has bias. And in the last paragraph, I think this is a really important point. There is bias. Some of these um, algorithms can tell you know, differences between races. Sometimes we won't understand exactly what this is. Sometimes we don't know exactly what it, where it, the bias is being introduced. However, it still works to grade and detect ROP. It still works to grade and detect uh, diabetic retinopathy. So it still works. And I think it. the important thing is that we test each of these algorithms in different races to make sure that the purpose that which we're, for which we are designing these algorithms are working. Are we still able to detect uh, ROP? It would be not ideal if someone you know, with a, dark, a darkly pigmented fundus was misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed, that is a bigger problem that would be uh, would reduce the uh, the functionality of it. Um, for me, the most important thing here is study design. Um, I think it's a really well designed study, um, but the most important thing is for all these deep learning algorithms, we have to be careful of what inputs we're putting in, and that we have a diversity of different. Um, uh, images and um, uh, sort of a, sort of racial backgrounds. What do we think about Rebecca, this paper and how it ties into our discussion? So already did a really good job kind of talking about the pros, I mean, the good things that you can see, but then there are some, it's, I think this is a great paper. I think it's a great analysis sort of thing we need to talk about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just one more um, paper that really helps us to identify the, the issues with AI, which is that, um, AI is both kind of artificial and man-made um, and men have biases and and that somehow is getting translated into the software um, and you know I totally agree with you know I've always it's always amazing to me the you know the OCT machines that are based on like 400 people and they're all white people and you know you're basing a lot of decisions on glaucomatous patients based on you know, a cohort of patients that were predominantly not African-American. Um, and so in all of our diagnostic technology, even currently and in the future, we definitely need to ensure that that diagnostic technology and all of our AI technology is based on a huge spread of patients and patient information. Um, 
And I think what's going to be hard is that we could potentially, I mean, things like the IRIS database, we have a ton of data from a ton of different patients that you could potentially feed into, into you know, a big database to create an AI algorithm with. Um, that's all fine and great, but there's some amount of um, human input that then is, is allowing some bias to enter. And so um, it's just... It just reminds us to be, you know, very careful with the data that we use and very guarded in how we interpret data. And it just reminds us that, you know, these are not going to be totally with, we can't trust AI to be totally without bias. It's not this perfect machine. It is a human created machine. Right. Right. And then, and then this whole concept, like they start their abstracts by writing race is a social construct, right? Um, but then AI still detects that, that, that because it's, it's learning from what we have already constructed. And it's not starting with a, a blank slate, a tabula rasa. It's starting with our own strengths and weaknesses and building off of that. Like, I think that it's going to be very, very important um, to, you know, we've already learned a lot about how throughout medicine, about how different populations uh, may receive different care in different settings that different populations may not get equal care in this in equal settings and one size fits all is probably not the the right way and a great example within medical retina is you know applying your lessons from a primarily caucasian population with wet amd to patients with a polypoidal which might come from various ethnicities is not going to work those are going to be separate disease entities i think this is going to be just another caution that you guys have both referenced it we just got to be cautious about how we talk about AI results. And again, grain of salt. It's always with a grain of salt in terms of interpreting what is being given to us by the algorithms um, because they are imperfect. And as much as it, you know, again, as human beings, we interpret speed as competence and accuracy. We interpret, you know, length or, or sort of detail as accuracy. Uh, that's not always the case, right? It, just because you have a really long, beautiful, beautifully written response and a great font that's really fast, or in the case of an algorithm like this, spits out a result really quickly, doesn't mean that it's good or better than something else. And I think we fall into that trap evaluating other people. I, I know in residency, when we look at residents and things, we really have to caution people. Yeah, we want residents who are going to be fast, but more important is you want residents or trainings who are going to be accurate. And I think that a lot of times we have that false equivalence where we're just like, just because something is efficient, it is better. It doesn't always mean it's better. In the case of AI, again, we're going to find it to be very efficient as it gets better. It doesn't mean it's perfect just because it's very, very efficient. Um, so are any last thoughts on this article before we move on? <clears throat> no, oh, great points uh, by both of you. I think uh, like the mo you know, there are ways to reduce you know, bias. I mean, I think, you know, as, as Rebecca said, I mean, that initial training data set that they used to convert to grayscale, it was trained on a, you know, like a predominantly, you know, white population. So, you know, how do we address that? We train the, train the algorithm on a more diverse patient population. I mean, like that's, you know, that includes, you know, all different races and ethnicities. There are some ways to do that. Um, the thing with the iris registry that I think is interesting is, I mean, there, there, there's no real imaging attached to that. So, you know, it can, you know, the, what, what would be interesting is, you know, if we did have, have imaging attached to that, um, I mean, a larger database is good because it's patients, you know, if theoretically uh, more and more retina practices are, are using the Irish registry, it's more and more data. More and more data may, it would mean greater patient diversity and not just, you know, it was, it's maybe, you know, where, you know, 
include, for example, income data. You know, do poor patients do uh, worse than you know patients who are wealthier? So the more data we have, the larger these data sets, the more likely we are to um, have uh, more diverse test population for these algorithms to learn on. I'll make a quick comment though. Um, there's one thing that I know that it, that ChatGPT and all these things are not going to be this in is 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 like being a rapper because you know because I actually put it on ChatGPT write a retina rap about fixing retinal detachments. Okay, oh, and right. um, this is what we're all waiting be, for. You ready for this? You ready for this? I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you two bars. Okay, first off, this is not gonna be my you know number one hit you know bringing Pexy back, but listen, this is insane. Okay. Listen up, I got something to say. It's about your eyes and how to keep them okay. Retinal diseases can cause some trouble, but there's treatments out there to make them subtle. If you're if you got a problem with your retina, don't wait too long. You've got to be a go-getter. Vitrectomy and sclerobuckle surgery are two options that can help you surely. Sclerobuckle surgery is another option used to treat retinal detachment without any presumption. A silicone band is wrapped around the eye to bring the retina back into its proper position. Hi. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's like not that bad. It, 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 it's not it bad. Runs. It's not bad, but I can crush. I, I will crush Chat GPT in a rap You bring it on. This man. should be this should be the next paper that we write, right? Yeah. Star Wars versus Retina Retina rappers versus Chat GPT. Who can make the best Retina rap? You know, clearly Let's it didn't it. reference any Steve Charles. And, you know, it, it was it included buckles, so um, it was sort of on the equal. Yeah. <laughs> let's let's end with this last paper. You guys have been really generous with your time. So quick. This is unrelated to AI, but just want to throw this in. This is a cost-utility comparison of bevacizumab and aflibercept in the treatment of uh, central hemiretinal vein occlusion in SCORE2, which Stephen Kimes is the first author from JAMA Ophthalmology. Rebecca, quick summary of uh, this paper. Yep. So um, a cost-utility analysis using the SCORE2 data, which compared Avastin and Ilea, um, and basically... The SCORE2 subset is 362 patients who are randomized to initial treatment with Avastin for CRV or hemiretinal vein occlusion um, and ILEA, and they're treated that way monthly for six months, and then at month six, non-responders are switched. Um, in the Avastin group, they're switched to ILEA. In the ILEA group, they're switched to um, Osrdex. And um, essentially, they use this um, decision tree with what they call Markov modeling, where they... Um, simulate patients running through this decision tree to figure out kind of the cost of uh, the additional cost of ILEA over the cost of Avastin for each quality adjusted life year. Um, and then they do some sensitivity analyses to see, you know, if you vary the cost or you vary the, the, the quality adjusted life years um, for each of these modalities, you know, what is the dominant strategy? And they find um, that essentially using the probabilistic and not like uh, sensitivity analysis that no matter what, bevacizumab is the dominant strategy given the high cost of a aflibercept and the lack of superiority of a aflibercept um, over Avastin. And they kind of suggest that the small difference in qualities, essentially the similarity in the visual acuity scores, um, uh, is essentially what has made starting with bevacizumab the dominant cost-effective strategy. Um, and I think interestingly, they say ILEA would only be the dominant strategy if it restored patients to near-perfect vision. So there's really, which is they suggest fairly impossible. So they say really um, bevacizumab is the predominant strategy that people should start with when thinking about 
um, cost utility. And they also say, you know, obviously this is a patient, um, there are differences between patients and there are some patients that you may want to start on ILEA um, and, you know, um, you know, there's each case is its own case, but from a cost utility perspective, bevacizumab was both the least, less costly and also, um, you know, had similar non-inferior uh, vision scores. Yeah, I think this is going to be something that, you know, I think retinal vein occlusion always gets a little bit of the short in the stick because it's not as common as AMD or DME and it's not nearly as sexy to talk about, but this has been talked about with other, you know, other trials. This is always an argument, right? Is the step therapy argument, right? Is that insurers and payers make is it's not unreasonable to start. The problem is um, there are disadvantages right now with compounded Avastin to using it. We do have you know, Outlook in the Norris trial right now that we might have an on-label bevacizumab option coming soon. And that's a whole fight to see what happens when that happens, because that may actually make Avastin more expensive. Um, and per the current law that exists would make compounded Avastin, you wouldn't be able to use it anymore once there's an on-label approved option for a manufacturer. So this is going to be something to talk about so we're going forward as a global scale, not just for RVO, but for all these conditions. Any surprises from this? I mean, I think this is pretty much what you would expect. I feel like every cost effectiveness trial that's looked at a vast versus another option, even protocol T where there was a head to head difference, it, the, the letter difference doesn't account for the cost difference, at least with the cost of a vast right now. The issue is the practicality sometimes in the real world of getting a vast compound and getting it at a point where it makes sense for a practice in terms of declining reimbursements and increasing costs across the board. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. Definitely no surprises here. I mean, I just think it's sort of a declaration of war uh, by this paper on um, Regeneron. <laughs> a flibercept with at current price levels, a flibercept would only be considered the preferred cost-effective option only if it restored the patient to nearly perfect health. Like, wow, man, that is savage, dude. But uh, uh, one thing that you know, <laughs> it, it was it was just great <laughs> to see that. I, I read that I'm like, wow, Regeneron is pissed. But. <laughs> I, you know what's interesting though, like as you mentioned, it doesn't take into consideration patient-specific <laughs> options. So sometimes I actually like retrospective studies for this specific um, mm. uh, type of thing because, for example, like I, you know, unfortunately because of the payer landscape in New York, I have, um, you know, I always, I usually start with a vaccine for a majority of patients. However, you know, it, you know, it. It doesn't, you know, like the quality of life measures that they mentioned in this uh, study it, are great because they're subjective cost measure, measures. But for example, like, you know, why do I personally, why do I switch a lot of patients, you know, DME or RBO to Ozernex? Because it reduces the number of injections. So, you know, that's, and I can extend up, extend their follow-up a little bit more. And also real world, a lot of us are doing treatment extend. We're not doing, as, as, as it was done in the study, six monthly Avastins followed by a switch to um, ILEA if needed, and then switching to Ozardex and the other arm. What, you know, for example, if a patient is, you know, dry uh, a month after the first injection, I'm oftentimes switching to five to six weeks. And I know a lot of our colleagues do that too. So what, what's, what, what can be a little, you know, dicey to me is, you know, insurance companies and, you know, our payers can come and show us data like this and say, hey, mm -hmm. you see this? This is, look at this, this is the numbers. Numbers don't lie, you know, but you know, the numbers don't lie, true, but it doesn't take into consideration the diversity. And, you know, for example, for uh, some patients, you know, they 
want to come in less often. It's like, what, what can, what can make me come in the less often, you know, and for, to patients, I say, you know what, we can use a, one of these on-brand medications that dry the retina a little bit more that can allow us to extend potentially a little bit more, or we can use Ozardex that, you know, or uh, some sort of ocular steroid that can, you know, keep the retina dry for longer and you'll, you'll have less follow-up. And so these cost-effective quality of life studies don't take into consideration some of these things. So what's dicey is, you know, this is just more ammunition to some of the challenges that we have when, when we run our practices. You know, like, like this, is, this is the kind of paper that, you know, insurance companies use when they're making some of their decisions. And uh, especially when it comes to step therapy and also even prior authorization, you know. Yeah, I, this is such a hard conversation. And this is why, I mean, look, everyone has their biases and we'll put our financial disclosures. Like, I'll be very open. I've consulted for Regeneron. I've consulted for Genentech. Like, but but I try to be very honest about what I do. I mean, I, I'm a first-line bevacizumab person and then switch if you don't respond or if you need to extend. I think that's super reasonable. And again, we are in a unique situation uh, because I practice in hospital where we compound our own Avastin. So I'm not sitting there stressed that the Avastin is going to have some sterile outbreak or storage or payers or it goes bad and I have to eat the cost. Like, I understand everyone's situation is a little bit different, but I mean, not to not to be, uh, you know, not to to minimize all these concerns, but I mean, really, this comes down to logic, I think, and and every, extremes just kind of dictating what happens, right? And you have extreme financial forces on both sides. You've got insurance companies that their only concern is they want to save money. They don't really care, unfortunately. I, I hate to say this, but insurers don't care. They don't care if the patient gets better or not. That's not their business model. Their business model is to minimize costs. So they're all aboard. Use the cheaper drug as much as possible, even if the patient's not improving. Then you have pharmaceuticals and they have in the reps you need and MSLs. And look, they some of them are more reasonable than others, but essentially their business model is they want to sell their drug, whether they're a Genentech or an Allergan or a Regeneron, whatever company is, they want more of their drug usage. They have their clear financial interests. And then last in this whole stakeholder conversation, which interestingly enough does not include the patient whose eye is the one that is going to actually experience effects either way, are physicians. And physicians are all going to be biased by our practice setting. If you're in a setting where it doesn't matter to you, then you're like, oh, why don't people use Avastin more? If you're a physician out in practice and you're like, yeah, I really like to use Avastin, but I can't use it in every scenario because you know, financially it doesn't make sense or I'm worried about safety or, hey, I really want to switch, but the insurer won't let me switch it. I think this patient needs it. But then we have physician abusers the other way who are just like, oh, it's malpractice. You should never use off-label, you know, Avastin first line. I use Ilea or Lucentis or Verbizma, whatever drug it is, first line for all my patients. And the reality is then you have to look at the financial interests of those stakeholders, right? Like it, the consulting disclosures, you know, the do, do they have stock in this these companies? And then the rebates that exist in terms of practices and the margins that exist. And that's going to be true. Extend it to biosimilars, extend it to similarly, extend it to biovis, extend it to all of these, right? It's complicated when you get money involved and money is heavily involved in all the stakeholders who talk about this subject. So I agree, not a surprising paper, a paper that unfortunately will be weaponized by one side to try to prevent patients who may benefit from switching drug to switching drug, a paper that will be dismissed completely from absolutists on the other side who don't want to use Avastin because the margins are lower or they're the pharmaceutical that doesn't want you to not use their drug. And the shame is if we could all sort of meet in the middle and be like, look, everyone is kind of making enough money in the capitalist system. We should just kind of try to do what's best for each patient. Super idealistic. We'd all probably be fine. And this conversation would be less weighted. But this goes back to knowing your information source, because Rebecca, you go to a meeting as a fellow or young attending and you hear people talk about this stuff. It's really hard because everyone has really strong opinions about this. 
And it's really hard to separate those opinions from the science and also the money part of it that ties into it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think I agree that this can be weaponized based on the perspective from which a cost utility analysis is taken. And I think it's important to note that cost, cost utility analyses are specifically intended to support um, policy. <laughs> and so you can't have like an unbiased cost utility analysis. And they specifically say in in their analysis, in the way that they do the methodology, that they're taking it from a healthcare perspective. If it was taken from a societal perspective, they it would be a lot more difficult to um, include, you know, indirect costs of you know patient transportation and an effect on other parts of the patient's life. Um, but I think anytime you undergo a cost utility analysis, you have a specific intention in mind to prove a point. And because of the way cost utility analyses are done, where you, you choose the inputs, you choose how to define qualities, you choose from what perspective it's done, you choose to ignore the implications and costs for the patient, you choose to ignore the repeat visits that they're going to have, um, or the transportation costs or things like that, um, then you are sort of making a stance. Um, about one drug versus the other. So I think it's important when you read as a reader, when you're looking at this literature to just understand that this was taken from a healthcare cost perspective, but in that sense, it's really not this full societal perspective. And right. so you are reading biased information. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, in every magazine you get, there's an insert or there's an article that is from one company or another, and maybe it's not directly from them. It's from sort of educational third party um, and it's good. I mean, it's good to educate people about trial results, but it doesn't mean that these drugs are evil or bad. I think that they're great. And we all have had patients already reference that, that they just don't respond to one drug and you can reduce their burden or get them vision with one drug. And I've had success stories. It's like all of us patients on off label, you switch on label and they do awesome. That doesn't mean that, you know, we've never seen a quick switch study really for RVO. There was the switch study for DME that came out and you know, the switch study basically showed you don't lose any ground by doing that. If you need to switch from a medical perspective, you define that kind of matches what we all sort of implicitly understand. Um, it's just, again, maybe realistically, it's the war, right? People are gearing up. They're like, well, if we give too much ground that way, then the insurers are going to push back. So we need to really dig our feet in on, hey, no step therapy. We get the right to choose so we can choose what we want. It's probably the more realistic approach. It's just that if there was a little more regulation of the insurance industry, and pharmaceutical, then I, I would hope and I think the physicians would sort of regulate themselves enough that it would be okay. Yeah, no, um, those are um, all great points. I think, uh, you know, this summer, the, 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 what this tells me is what we need is more transparency, right? I mean, for example, like when we, we, we mentioned like, you know, rebates that companies get um, when it comes to uh, medication. So for example, there are practices that I know of that only inject Avastin because it's, you know, too much. They don't want to deal with the prior authorization staff. There's mm -hmm. also, you know, as you mentioned, there's other companies that, you know, don't, you know, that inject, you know, biosimilars or a specific medication because they get all these great rebates. You know, I mean, you know, I won't mention any names, but I know there's private equity uh, companies that are brought out, uh, you know, retina and ophthalmology practices that get these ridiculous, you know, uh, discounts and rebates. So their drug profits are very high, which is why they're, you know, uh, um, as far as I know, among the bigger, biggest utilizers of some of the biosimilars that have uh, been approved over the last couple of years. So, you know, this is one of the things that where I think transparency is important, you know, and the, the reason it's tough is it's because, you know, we have health insurance, right? You know, this would not be as big of an issue if we had, you know, patients just paying for what they wanted. You know what I mean? It's like, 
I, if, if patients were paying out of pocket, then, then things would be a little bit different. Uh, but from a societal standpoint, I'm all for lower costs. But I mean, I think we all need to be transparent about what our motivations are. Um, but when a patient's in front of us, you know, the motivation in an, in, in an ideal world should be what is best for this patient right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, again, to your point, it's not good either for a practice basically to be like, ah, we don't want to deal with prior op. So we'll just tell the patients that Avastin's fine for everyone. And even if they're not getting better, just keep ingesting it with Avastin ad nauseum rather than either doing the prior op or getting them to someone who can do it. And look, to your point about insurance, yeah, it'd be nice if patients could pick. And I think the problem is if you start, people say then just have one nationalized kind of universal insurance. But the problem is you see in VAs or counties or Kaiser is then it can be sometimes challenging to get brand drug. Because again, there's somebody on the back end kind of looking at it and being like, ah, it doesn't make sense for our system because of the costs involved. Um, so it's tough. It's very tough. And the biosimilar thing is a big thing. We're going to hear a lot about pushing for biosimilars. They may be reasonable. There's some data that suggests they are. But the problem is that's not the reason that people are pushing for them. The reason it's being pushed is because of individual financial benefit. And that's the hard part because then it makes it really hard just to interpret the science when, you know, you're a cynic like Star Wars Zahid and you hear that. You're like, man, I'm never going to use a biosimilar because I'm counterculture and I don't want to deal. I know what they're trying to tell me. And I know that I'm going to write a rap about this, that ChatGPT can't be about how biosimilars, they're not wrong. But, you know, I just can't believe you, Shorty, when you're telling me about these biosimilars. I know you're getting paid on the back end. So, anyway, uh, Rebecca, sorry, you've been really generous with your time. We went over an hour. I appreciate it. Great podcast, great journal club discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jay. Thanks to Dr. Suarez and for Zahid for joining us for this episode. Listeners, remember, you can find a list of all of our episodes on our website, redtinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. There are 396 episodes that are sorted by category. Four more to go till 400. You can reach out to us directly by emailing us directly at redtinapodcast at gmail.com or by clicking on the contact us link on our website. Thanks again to our whole production team, includes Drs. Justin Ma, Louis Kai, Angela Chang, and Mike Vinicasa. Congratulations to Dr. Mike Vinicasa for graduating from his ophthalmology residency and starting practice in Miami, Florida. Listeners, thank you for all that you do, the articles you read and publish, the conversations you inspire here each week, and the patients you take care of on a weekly basis. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Good feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha